Welcome back to A Movie and an Argument with Alyssa and Swin. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg, the culture critic for Thing Progress and a columnist for Slate in the Atlantic. And I'm here today, as always, with... Aswin Soupsang. I'm the Interactive Writing Fellow at Mother Jones DC Bureau, and I'm also their movie guy. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us again. Happy to be here as always. Um, and we're here today, um, let's start out by talking about Ryan Murphy's American Horror Story, which returns mm-hmm. to FX tonight, um, perhaps fittingly the night after a presidential debate. <laughs> um, and I wanted to start by saying I am not a horror person, which I sort of wish I was, because as a socially engaged critic, Horror has always been sort of a bastion of interesting commentary about sort of the times in which we live, what the sort of dark parts of our souls say about our larger worldviews. And I wish I liked it more. Um, I got exposed to some horror content too early as a kid, have had serious nightmares a lot of my life as a result, which is a weird and embarrassing thing to admit. But well, it's not tr- embarrassing at all. It, well, it is what it is. Um, and so horror is very, very hard for me to watch. And But you take it for your readers. I will take it occasionally. Um, I, I w- went to my first horror movie in a theater ever when I went to see Drag Me to Hell, which uh, has as its moral, you should never foreclose on a gypsy. Um, During a housing and economic crisis. I think probably you should never foreclose on a gypsy, period, <laughs> but that definitely makes it worse. Um, and... I watched part of the first season of American Horror Story and now am back for the second, um, which I would say is, I think, sort of stronger for me in terms of the ensemble cast and how they're pulling the story together. And I think the show is really benefiting from the fact that this time around, um, we know that it's a horror anthology. It's a season-long story. Mm -hmm. Um, And they sort of played bait and switch with us on that last season, which I think may have been a little bit of a mistake in terms of people being kind of surprised by what ended up being the narrative arc. And I think now that we know that this is a miniseries, um, it, you know, sort of, co- it gels a little bit more. Right, definitely. And uh, before I say, um, I think about American Horror Story Asylum, which premieres uh, tonight, Wednesday, October 17th. I just want to say there's no shame in your aversion to horror Genre in general. I mean, I, I still get freaked out whenever I see, like, Snuggies commercial based on, like, childhood trauma. So, <laughs> I mean, again, no shame. But uh, full disclosure, I'm a big horror buff, especially stuff that has very little substance, is very B-movie and cheesy. Um, I, I don't think that's what American Horror Sto- Story is at all since season since its first season last year. Um, even when it fails, it does try to hit at big issues, however clumsily, whether it's political, social, mentions... Well, it's a very mannered show, and mm-hmm. that's, I think, sort of important to grasp about it. It is, you know, it is very performative. It's, I mean, the fact that sort of Jessica Lange, Lange is its lead actor and kind of is the thread mm-hmm. that draws the anthologies together, at least so far, you know, she is sort of a big, campy performer and you know that's kind of at the heart of what the show is right and last it's, it's artifice is very obvious yeah and last season um well as you mentioned this is a, it's like an extended it's an uh, anthology it's an anthology series yeah. it's an anthology of miniseries the uh first season it had like connie Britton, it had dylan mcdermott um they're gone completely there's no more haunted house in present day most of this takes place in 1964 um, in an insane asylum that um, I guess we can say is haunted. I mean, there are satanic ongoings yes. there. And Jessica Lang, who was like kind of a crazy spirited neighbor in the last season, is now a torturing lingerie clad 
blackmailing nun yes. who helps run the insane asylum in uh, American Horror Story and Asylum. Who none the, and nonetheless, I should say, I have a lot of sympathy for her. Um, yeah, I was just going to touch on that because the uh, we, you and I have both seen just the first two episodes of, was it this 10-episode season? Right. And it, it quickly degenerates into... Um, no, she's not really the hero of the story, but she is sympathetic, and it almost seems at first, like, I guess before the first episode ends, to me at least, that maybe she could be the hero, which is weird, because uh, Ryan Murphy, who, along with Brad Fulchuk, like, created this show, along with Glee and Popular, and uh, what else have they done again? Those are the main things. Yeah, those are the main I things. I mean, also the new normal now, mm-hmm. but, yeah. They're uh, lefties, like Hollywood TV lefties, big... Obama supporters, and yet they go out of their way to make this, like, traditionalist, torturing, like, fundamentalist nun played by Jessica Lange just as, if not slightly more sympathetic and human than these other characters around her in the asylum who are, like, men of silence, like a progressive father, and who talk about JFK putting a man on the moon, being guided by science, Mm -hmm. and yet she somehow seems like a little bit less of a monster, so... I mean, this is very much a story about Catholicism, and mm-hmm. I think that will both make, make, make a lot of people like it and make a lot of people uncomfortable. And one of the things that's interesting about Lang's character um, is that, you know, she is this woman religious who has very much subsumed her identity in her Monsignor, is played by Joseph Fiennes. Um, and there's, a, there's, I mean, a sort of explicit sexual element to her devotion, um, by which mm-hmm. I say that she is devoted to him not because she is sexually attracted to him, but because the sort of fervor of her devotion is almost a sexual thing. Right. Um, and, you know, she's sort of browbeaten by this doctor played by James Cromwell, who is clearly up to absolutely no goddamn good a, um, a mad scientist yes he has a yeah. nubile nun tripping off to uh, feed something rather nasty in the forest um mm. and you know hires prostitutes who he wants to do sort of violent things to he's a he's a creepy mother um and she also finds herself challenged by a young um psychiatrist played um quite well i think by zachary quinto um who many of you will know from star trek if not from other places and the first season of american horror story right and so there's this extent to which you know lang's character is absolutely lang's character is sort of this interesting mix of right and wrong i mean you know she has a number of people incarcerated under her care who are clearly not insane and Mm. are sort of guilty of nothing more than being a lesbian, having a high sex drive, um, being married to a black woman. But there are also people under her care who are clearly possessed by something that can't be explained by medical science. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so we see her doing these terrible things to these sort of sane people whose crimes are social rather than mental. Um, And then we see her being sort of undermined in her belief that much of what causes insanity is sin by, you know, priests who want to do exorcisms, by men of science, by this shrink. And so it's a very interesting sort of touchy dynamic. And it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, definitely. And the but the story arc for people looking for something less cerebral and more visceral is, um, would you agree with me, bloody face? Like who is 
bloody face. I mean, yes. they're, they're one of the guys incarcerated, as you were saying, uh, like one of his supposed crimes was being married to a black woman. But secretly. also the idea is that but, he's a serial killer known as bloody face who murders, dismembers and skins women. And wears their faces as masks. But it, it's pretty, the case so far is pretty strong that he didn't do it. And this is um, mild spoiler, I guess, warning um, that he was abducted by aliens. Right, and, that's and that, a, that is something that I do not like about this. That's like the one big thing. See, to me, it's out. kind of a fun '60s twist. It's like that, you know. That's something that was a going concern at the time, and you know, it's sort of playful and weird. But it's also, to me, it's a metaphor. I mean, I don't believe in UFOs or anything, but for me, it's this metaphor of, you know, having something happen to you that nobody believes. Right? Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's something that you can't explain, that you can't, that people will. If you say it, even if it's true, people will look for for excuses to discredit you. And I find that kind of interesting. That's true. I haven't I didn't think about it that way, but I got I gotta admit, at least for now, it's still sticking out at me like in that fourth Indiana Jones movie when aliens show up and you're thinking, What the hell are these things doing there? They don't belong there. I just aliens just aren't that's nearly as scary to me as demons possession and Ghosts and nasty serial, serial killers. killers. Yeah, I, I, just for some reason, I don't think it fits. But maybe the show will surprise me before the end of its sure. uh, ten episode run. But the f- opening of the show, which involves it, um, and bloody face, and there's a yeah. It should, we should be clear that there's a frame device. Um, yeah. We first are introduced to this asylum known as Briarcliff when a young couple, um, recently married, played by Adam Levine, and it's is it Jenna Dewan? Is that right? I, I gotta got be honest. I anyway, forget. sexy young married couple. Who, um, she is apparently turned on by famous like horror sites because who knew? Um, <laughs> are exploring this ruined asylum, abandoned, when, derelict. Yes, when Adam Levine's character makes the totally dumbass amateur mistake of sticking his hand through a vent to reach for something and gets it ripped off. Yeah, you just never do that. Even if it's a place that's not haunted, you don't stick your hands through vents. Yeah. Unless that, you're paid to do it. Right, you know? that's one of the things that you learn when you're like five. Exactly. But. <laughs> and uh, so I guess that's a good way to summarize it for me. If you're into a show that within the first five minutes of the first episode of its second season has the lead singer of Maroon 5 getting eviscerated... This show's for you. And I got to say that that's a draw for me. Well, and I would say for me, you know, as someone who has a really hard time watching stuff as viscerally violent as this season of American Horror Story is, I found myself surprised by the extent to which I was willing to put up with being scared and upset and avert my eyes for certain things for some of the social themes in the performances. Because there's just a lot of good acting work going on here. We've talked about Jessica Lange for most of our discussion of this. But Sarah Paulson, as a young lesbian journalist who comes to Briarcliff to uh, try and sort of get the bloody face story and ends up incarcerated in part because of her lesbianism mm. uh, is wonderful. Clea Duval is her partner who's blackmailed into signing over, like into signing an affidavit that gets her condemned to this mental institution is very good. Um, Chloe Savini. Or yeah. Savigny Savini, I always um, Yes, again, plays a, you know, character who's incarcerated because she, you know, is a nymphomaniac, at least that's the diagnosis, but it sounds like she mostly just has a normal sex drive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all of this stuff is strong enough for me to overcome a almost pathological aversion to the right. genre. Um, and, and that's exciting. Yeah, in terms of uh, gender issues, like um, the very... 
I'm very conflicted, or at least somewhat conflicted, about liking Jessica Lange's character or thinking she's even somewhat sympathetic. But um, how she says, like, I will always triumph against the patriarchal male or the patriarchal yeah. authority. It's great stuff because it is showing this really anti-progressive, hyper-religious f- figure who is at least setting herself up as a re- the most, maybe the most feminist character in the show, or at least the most aggressively feminist, like yeah. always trying to triumph over um, well, certainly if we've James seen, Cromwell. Yes, I mean, certainly, you know, if we've seen sort of the crackdown against women religious in the United States now on the grounds that uh, the nuns in the United States aren't sufficiently loyal to Catholic social teaching. Um, you know, this, these are conflicts that are very much alive and well. And mm-hmm. it's a, you know, I, of all the things that a campy horror anthology could tackle, this one's pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to say and- from that to the other extremely violent thing I spent my day watching. Um, oh, goody. Which is uh, Tyler Perry's Alex Cross. Um, Did and you this- write and direct? No, he didn't. And so it's not a Tyler Perry's Alex Cross in the same way. It's, you know, Tyler Perry's media media family reunion. Mm -hmm. Um, I should note that the man himself does not wear a dress and a wig and say things like I can do bad all by myself. Um, He's playing James Patterson's Alex Cross, um, who in this movie is living in Detroit with his family rather than in Washington, D.C., where he eventually ends up, although there's strong sort of sequel setup potential. Um, And he's supposed to be a sort of Sherlock Holmes character who ends up on the track of a deranged serial killer um, who goes, at least when he's in the ultimate fighting ring by the name of the Butcher of Sligo, um, who is played with uh, some sort of nutty intensity, and that's about all I'll say for it, by Matthew Fox, whose career has fallen about down as far down the rabbit hole, given how much goodwill he had several years ago as it is possible to go. Um, And it's a very interesting movie to me for a couple of reasons. Um, It is for a movie that has sort of a black lead and sets up a, um, you know, sort of archetype of, you know, a sort of black family man and law enforcement officer. It is a movie with some of the most strikingly racist elements I've ever seen. The treatment of Asian women in the movie is just straight up disgusting. One of them we see paralyzed getting her fingers cut off. And then there's sort of a joke about the use of her fingers as later in the plot by the detectives themselves. The other Asian woman Chopsticks. is... Chopsticks? Uh, no, opening a fingerprint safe. Um, and then oh. the other Asian woman in the show is a sort of clearly over-sexualized, drug-addicted assistant to a powerful man. It's a, it's really gross. Um, and the movie, the movie itself is terrible in a lot of ways. I mean, it just doesn't work at all um i'm glad i skipped the screening yeah but it's a very interesting failure if only because you know so in cop movies and we have this debate over what it means to be a cop and a lot of what our pop culture posits is that a cop is someone who is allowed to break the law in the pursuance of justice right cops are people Mm. to whom we give dispensation uh if we like a cop character enough we let him beat up a suspect in interrogation we let him drive too fast we let him flip off his captain um, because we trust him to be right. And it's very interesting to see Alex Cross respond to that, and that is sort of a scenario that has historically been a bad thing for black characters, um, respond to that by sort of taking on that power, by, you know, by virtue of the fact that he is educated and a family man and, 
you know, extremely smart and good at his job, he sort of, rather than question the assumption that those things are what make a cop, he is this black character who takes on that ability to flagrantly violate the law and set people up and still retain our sympathy. And I think that's a really interesting choice. And to a certain extent, in keeping with some of the conservatism of Perry's work. Um, and But it's a... It's a very uneven movie. He also just can't do stunts or action stuff at all. Right. And it's, I, the movie is the, all the action choreography is shot extremely close up. Mm-hmm. So you can. Um, so the movie can sort of skip the fact that he like can't land a credible punch on anyone. The stuntman's union made a lot of money out of this movie. Oh, I'm sure. How. Uh, but how does he handle the more dramatic role? Because I I mean, I don't. Well, it's a pulp. So he's fine. You know, oh, I mean, a, it's not. This isn't. These are. James Patterson's, you know, books for people who don't actually want to read books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he can, you know, and I would say there's one scene in which he's very good and which he's sort of suffered a tremendous personal loss and he can sell that stuff. You know, I mean, I don't find him like scary or intimidating or a badass, but, you know, he plays a family man well and he plays a family man under duress well. He does a good job with that. What's what's your overall take on Tyler Perry? Surprisingly, you and I have never talked about Tyler Perry. I mean, I find Tyler Perry fascinating because, you know, he has this studio and he's just sort of manifestly, he's someone who could build an empire, right? He's someone who could credential other directors and like give other actors good roles. But it's really the Tyler Perry show. Like, you know, when he directed uh, for Color Girls, which is this, you know, unbelievably important text to women of color, rather than bringing in a black female director to take on this this work that is both about sort of black womanhood and you know, really kind of belongs to black women in a way that it doesn't to black men. He directs it himself. You know, he's not interested in other people's interpretations or giving other people's opportunities. And, you know, I find the way that he kind of questions the assumption that he's supposed to do that interesting, if not admirable. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think this will come as much of a shock to you. Maybe it's that, as people have told me before, I don't get it, but... I, just never seen the appeal in Tyler Perry anything. I have no idea how he makes so much money. I well, he comes I don't find of, he comes out of this very specific black theater circuit. Right. Um, so he's working within sort of a very clearly established tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, the sitcoms that he's making, you know, reflect that less than they are just simply old school multicam, you know, live studio audience or laugh track sitcoms. You know, I think he feels like a relic but he's you know the reason he makes a lot of money swin is that he makes movies for audiences that hollywood doesn't give a shit about you know he is one of the few people who's willing to be like i'm gonna make a movie for black women that's fair you know and it's i won't understand until there's a director out there in hollywood making movies specifically for asian 20 something men and then i'll understand what it's like to be a targeted niche at this moment i don't know what that would feel like no it's an interesting question (laughs) I, I'll write my letters. Um, and I wanted to hear what you had to say about um, Happy Endings and Don't Trust, Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23, which I will never stop calling Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23. Oh, I, I won't. How many times it's blanked out. <laughs> and even though it doesn't rhyme now. It is his name. It cannot, <laughs> it cannot have another in its life. Um, <laughs> not to get all the crucible about television names. Oh, good Lord. I clearly haven't had my coffee. Uh, yes. Yeah, so those come back next week. You've seen the screeners. I haven't had a chance to watch them yet. Well, 
Um, I want to start with Don't Trust the Bee, Don't Trust the Bitch, however you want to put it. Um, it comes back for its second season after like a mid-season or late mid-season premiere last year. Um, can you recap it a little bit? For sure. Listener? I mean, the creation of Nanachka Khan, a writer who came out of uh, Seth MacFarlane's factory, actor, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a story about a naive young woman who moves to New York. Um, both expecting that there will be a job for her there, there turns out not to be, and expecting that she and her fiancé will end up getting married. Spoiler alert, it doesn't happen. She <laughs> ends up moving in with June. Um, sorry, not with June. June is Dream Walker's character. With uh, Christian Ritter's character, who is sort of notorious for getting in roommates, getting their first and last, and then driving them out of the apartment and keeping the money. Um, she also happens to be friends with James Vanderbeek, who's playing himself to a uh, significant effect, I would say. Um, and so, I mean, it's essentially an odd couple comedy with um, a certain, you know, sexual edge, which I've always sort of enjoyed right. about. And also a certain racial edge, which we'll talk about a little bit. It, it has a commitment to offbeat and, uh, like, s- politically incorrect humor in, I think, a way that um, is it tries a bit too hard, but I'll get into that in a second. But my, on my general feelings of the show, when it came out last year, you and I we screamed at each other a little bit about this because you liked it. You like what Kristen uh, Ritter, yes, was especially what she was doing with the role, and I do like her as an actress. Like she was good in She's Out of My League and the first season of Till Death on Fox, but. I thought everybody was terrible in the show. I couldn't stand James v- Vanderbeek. I called it like the Bashar al-Assad of TV shows, something like that should be like brought under charges of like the crime against humanity of trying my uh, patience. Pro- it uh, was just proportionality. I I just hated it so much. I thought it was one of the least funny things I'd ever seen. I don't know how this happened. It grew on me. Like as the season ended, like as I was saying, like it's politically incorrect humor. It tries too hard to make fun of Asians, gays, Romanians, like everybody. And I think that's part of coming out of the Seth MacFarlane, like, puppy mill sure. comedy. Whereas I mean, you I just also... try to, like, jab everybody. Well, I, I, I don't surprised think it's... if Khan, who is herself a South Asian woman, um, you know, I think it's a cred-establishing thing, too, right? I mean, it's a, you know, just because I'm a woman, I'm one of very, very few women of color who's created a TV show doesn't mean that I'm, like, you know prissy or oversensitive that wouldn't surprise me either right right oh, especially absolutely. not coming out of that sort of intellectual tradition sure sure <laughs> and i i mean i love like the sort of like politically incorrect rude offensive humor i think it's what makes this country great but i just don't feel like she sticks the landing enough or goes like let me give you an example sometime in season one when i was really hanging the show something that really epitomized to me how much i hated it was when like a character played like a Korean female pastor was talking to the main black character and she just said, can I touch your hair? You look like Obama. And it's supposed to be a funny moment, but I just kind of like raised an eyebrow. I'm like, I get it. He's black and has lightish skin. He looks like Obama score. Like that, that must have taken you like eight milliseconds to write. I, so there's still those moments that are present in like the first episode of season two, and I'm sure it'll be prevalent until the show gets axed. But I found a way to like just completely disregard that for the sake of particularly Kristen Ritter, who I think it, who I now think is fantastic. I don't know that how this happened, but she's hilarious. She's witty. She's sly in her timing. The parts I used to find like infuriating, 
about the way she would p play this like decadent, debauched, like nightmare of a roommate, I now find charming. And I don't know how that happens. And maybe you can tell me how you initially reacted to it last season, and that'll give me a way of figuring out how that happened to me. I, mean, I guess I just appreciated Diagnose her character as like kind of sexually gonzo, right? You know, I mean, she's she gets to be like sexually nutty in a way that male characters sometimes get to be more often. Mm. Um, and I think of like her of sort of Megan Mullally's performance on Parks and Recreation, which I love, in which she's this like you know man-eating sexy librarian, which and like middle-aged sexy librarian, not in a like I'm sexually available to you, but isn't like I'm going to eat you whole. Um, right. Ron Swanson's way. wives have a yeah. tendency to be that way. Yeah, and so I just sort of appreciated the unhinged elements of the performance. Um, you know, like, we don't get many sort of charming female sociopaths on television, and I enjoyed that. I also really liked Dream Walker, who was in one of my favorite movies this year, Compliance, um, which is this just remarkable drama. Um, and that girl has range. Like, that girl is going places. And so... She was in 500 Days to Summer, right? Yes. Of uh, Summer, right? So I think there's just I think there's a lot going on there. And I think the answer, Swin, is that comedy takes time. It really does. I mean, the first season of Parks and Recreation is terrible. Um Oh, I wouldn't go that far. Oh, I think it's pretty bad. It's definitely it's sort of a sour show. Um That's yeah. But, you know, it's too bad that the development process doesn't work this way, but there are so many comedies where I wish they could shoot and extensively test six episodes, mm -hmm. throw them all out, and then shoot a pilot and start over. Because it takes these things a long time to find their groove. And, you know, Don't Trust the Bitch started in March or April. It didn't air that many episodes. And those, I mean, I am willing to sort of treat the first season as a test, as... You An know, incubator sort of, of yeah, talent it's a, and Yeah, it's a test season, almost. Mm -hmm. um, and that's and, hard. There are almost no comedies that are good and sort of fully developed and self-assured out the gate. And... You know, particularly on network, it's hard. It mm -hmm. takes things some time. Yeah, and I do highly recommend the uh, screener of the first episode this season. I think you'll like it a lot. It has all the elements and then some um, um, that you said you admired of season one. And James Vanderbeek's character, who is James Vanderbeek, Vanderbeek. is um, at least trying, however clumsily, to organize a Dawson's Creek reunion Ugh, ten years after. Amazing. I, I'm. I'm not going to tell you how successful he is because I don't want to spoil the fun for you. But it, it's a good time. And um, Kristen Ritter's character is not sociopathic, but psychopathic as always. She gets her hands on a trank gun and starts oh shooting people with it for fun. And she has this thing that I think male characters get away with in a lot of TV shows that they shouldn't. And she maybe shouldn't, but does get away with in this one, in which she says, like... There's a flashback to her tranking someone she was sexually attracted to and then saying, trank sex. It's, it's legal because it's consensual. And it, it is one of those things where you're like, if a, guy, if a dude said that on a sitcom and it's time slot on ABC, we'd be like, you have rape culture. And here it sort of is, but I guess the way she gets away with this, she's trying to flip it on its head. Well, or, or it however reveals, crudely. I mean, also a common form of humor is to realize, is to, you know, if there is a circumstance where something is sort of accepted or expected of someone and then someone who isn't that person does it, mm -hmm. that actually can reveal sort of how disturbing and weird something is. That is true. So we can agree that trank sex is not legit. Yeah, also just not fun. <laughs> yeah, like what, yeah, it's like we should host an episode on 
this one topic entirely uh, some other time. Fair right enough. Now, it's too early. I haven't had my coffee. I'm not in the mood to talk about that it. That one we can shoot at like 10 o'clock at night in Nick Bowen's apartment. I think that's the way to go. Yeah, completely abetted and aided by um, Johnny Walker. But anyway, uh, Alyssa, we got to get going. But thank you so much for showing up t- this morning. As- Happy as always. American Horror Story people. Just like bull through it. I... I'm not normally someone who recommends things like this, but stick with it, people. I agree. Alyssa, I'll see you next time. Absolutely. Have a good one.